Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonobello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now, you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. And as promised 167 hours ago... We are back with another edition of A Different Perspective, broadcasting from high atop the world on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, which for some reason in Canada would be the uh, XZ Broadcast Network. Anyhow, I'm going to be talking with Lance Moody here, a, uh, I guess a skeptic, you might say. I was also going to point out that back in the olden days of yore, back in the last century, I actually hosted a radio program uh, on KTSM Radio in El Paso, Texas, about this sort of phenomenon. And I couldn't get skeptics to come on the program, with the exception of Philip Klass. I would, uh, I had talked to the, uh, written, emailed the people at Prometheus Books, trying to get the guests for the program, and they just never bothered to respond. Phil Klass came on, and I think it was because I knew Phil Klass personally. We'd actually been sailing once on the Potomac River. So he had an idea of what my personality was and what kind of things I would do. And he said, well, I'll get you some guests uh, for the program, but they never, never panned out. This time I've been lucky. I've had Robert Schaefer on the program. I've had John Shirley, who I uh, think of more as a science fiction writer than a, a, a skeptic, but he certainly brings a skeptical attitude toward the, to, to the table. And now we have Lance Moody, who uh, may be much more than a skeptic on this sort of phenomenon. We'll find out uh, that in a, in a few moments. Lance, is a film editor, 
an animator living in Cincinnati, Ohio. He's a longtime skeptic of uh, the paranormal, especially UFOs, and his rarely updated blog is notaghost.com. And I did take a look at that uh, a while ago because I was trying to put this whole thing together. And it's true. It doesn't update it very often. So I am going to welcome Lance Moody to a different perspective. Lance, hello. Thank you, Kevin. I really am so much more than a skeptic, but we'll deal with that aspect of me for a little while. <laughs> I was thinking more of a blog, not a blog, <laughs> but a debunker. But we'll go into <laughs> that later. Um, and, and, you know, I wanted to kind of get here in the beginning before we run out of time which is what's driving me here uh what tripped you over into skepticism did you ever kind of believe in ufos being alien craft uh believe in the paranormal or were you always sort of very skeptical oh i was i was very open to it particularly around the time that close encounters came out when i was probably 16 years old or so 17 uh, around that time, you know, I had a telescope. I, I was like, I was very open to the idea of what we saw in that great movie, uh, that that might be a possibility. And it, it was really, I, I sort of became a skeptic in the next decade. I, I began <laughs> to become a skeptic. I, I read uh, Martin Gardner's book, Fads and Fallacies in the Name of Science, and uh and James Randi had a book called Flim Flam, and, and slowly those things pushed me more into skepticism. Well, you know what's interesting is uh, back around that same time, and the, the Close Encounters, of course, opens with the discovery of the missing Flight 19 from the Bermuda Triangle. And right. uh, Prometheus had done a book called uh, The Bermuda Triangle Solved, and at the time I picked up the book, I was a believer that something mysterious was going on in the Bermuda Triangle, and I thought, you know, you've got to know what your your enemies are saying, and his book convinced me that there was really nothing to the Bermuda Triangle other than uh, sort of a manufactured mystery, right? And, which I thought was kind of interesting because I approached it from the idea, you know, there is a mystery there, there's something strange going on. And his research was so detailed that it pushed me into the skeptical, uh, I guess, the spe- skeptical realm on the Bermuda Triangle. Right. And that, that really is a great book. It, it, and it, it really does make clear a lot of times that the stories have their own legs. You know, they, they, have their, they make their own gravy. So, so uh, the stories can continue on even with absolutely nothing to support them. Well, we're going to have to break here in just a moment. I will say this. I was a, back when I was an Air Force intelligence officer, I was a member of the 928th Tactical Airlift Group based in Chicago, and our parent organization was the 440th Tactical Airlift Wing in uh, Milwaukee, and they had lost an airplane in the Bermuda Triangle. So I asked them about that. I mean, I'm right there on scene, and I can talk to the people. And they said, uh, yeah, we, uh, we found the wreckage. You want to see part of it? We got it down in the hangar. So, I mean, I kind of moved that out of the realm of the disappearance in the Bermuda Triangle. Anyway, we're going to have to take a break here. We'll be back with Lance Moosey. We'll talk about uh, skepticism, where it's going, and that sort of thing. And as I always say, I'll have more information on my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. Hope you got it under that over that stumbling we will be back right after this
This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the X-Zone Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the Exxon Broadcast Network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan, and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember, 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere, 24-7-365. I am Dr. Carl O'Helvey, founder, president of a new cancer foundation focusing on evidence-based physical, mental, and spiritual interventions, including natural cancer cures, prayer, meditation, affirmations, nutrition, and other related holistic cancer prevention and cure modalities. These are used in cancer education, research, and financing care. I ask for your help to continue this important work by donating at www.holisticcancerfoundation.com. Hello, I'm Pete Marsh. With my daughter Justina, we will be presenting the new radio show, Too Good to Be True. If something seems too good to be true, it usually is. But with the help of Justina's amazing gifts, we're going to gain insight into questions that don't yet have complete answers. Have you wondered who built Stonehenge and for what reason? Why are crop circles found in the same region as Stonehenge and elsewhere? Are crop circles a hoax or are they created with technologies that we have little knowledge of? Who built the pyramids in Egypt and also in other countries? How and why were they built? Was the Titanic switched with the Britannic as part of a gigantic insurance fraud or for more insidious reasons? What caused the Tunguska event when trees were flattened over an 800 square mile area in Siberia? Will the new insights be too good to be true? Well, that will depend on what you are prepared to believe. Please join us as we start on this journey together. For more information on Too Good To Be True, visit www.xzbn.net. Little children aren't the only ones afraid of the dark. Millions of soldiers return from war zones with PTSD, anger, frustration, fear, and loneliness, much of which surfaces during the darkness of the night. You have the chance to change the lives of these American heroes. Songs and Stories for Soldiers.us provides free MP3 players for these men and women. With a list of 3 million songs, 
songs in 16 different styles, 100,000 audiobooks, and 30,000 old-time radio programs, every veteran can find something to soothe and comfort them at no cost. All our players contain an eight-hour audio program designed to help veterans fall asleep. With 1,500-plus vets now participating, it's our goal to deliver 10,000 audio players this year. Go to our website at songsandstoriesforsoldiers.us. Help us help a veteran make it through the night. And as I promised just minutes ago, we would be back with Lance Moody. Uh, he hasn't gotten angry and hung up on me yet. Not yet. Uh, there you go. Not yet. Uh, so I'll see what I can do to facilitate that. <laughs> we were talking about skepticism in your evolution into skepticism. Uh, a couple of books. The we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter pounds. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. We all have that friend who wakes up early to go get everyone McDonald's breakfast while the rest of us sleep in. This is your sign to thank them. And if you're that friend, this is us saying thank you. Now get a sausage McMuffin, sausage biscuit, sausage burrito, or hash browns. Choose two for two fifty. Enjoy a large iced coffee for just two dollars. Price of participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. A combo meal, single item at regular price. That you read was there a UFO sighting that you thought was really great that kind of uh, moved you into the skeptical realm when you learned more about it? Uh, how did you get from uh, kind of a belief from from uh, close encounters to your skepticism over a span of a decade? Well, sometime during that, the 70s, when I was a kid, I was maybe a little younger than 17. I was on my bicycle and I was riding. And I looked up in the sky and I saw this amazing thing in the sky. It, uh, in, in my memory, it was huge and it looked kind of like a window in the sky. And I kept riding my bicycle and I saw uh, some guys that were gathered, guys and girls that were gathered uh, around looking up at it and I drove up there and began talking to them and and they told me what it was it was a uh, a laundry bag you know that very very thin plastic and uh, the laundry bag they they made a cross with balsa wood and put uh, candles uh, along the the that cross to make hot air and that filled up with hot air and the this big plastic balloon floated up in the sky and of course it was lit up by the candles and it it's it's a it's really amazing how your brain uh sort of fools you into uh thinking about things you see in the sky in a way that really they aren't you know that they aren't as big as they seem they aren't as they aren't moving as fast as they seem and uh so that was that was but, you know, I found out what that was quickly. So maybe that was another uh, aspect of, of things that pushed me into skepticism. But in the in the 1990s, I decided uh, I got interested in this guy named Otis Carr. Now, this is before I was I really knew much about UFOs. I was just more like a general skeptic. Uh, uh, and I got interested. in. Are you familiar with Otis Carr at all? I know of a car, but I'm not sure we're talking about the same guy. Was he the one that was promoting the Aztec UFO crash, or was it? A, is that a he different might have, guy? He might have vaguely had something to do with Aztec, or later on, people somehow connected him to Aztec. But he 
He was a guy who in the late 50s began appearing on Long John Neville's radio program. And he claimed that he, he was, had been friends with uh, Nikolai Tesla when he was a, a clerk at a hotel in uh, New York. And that he that Tesla had given him some secrets, some some uh, important tech, technological uh, uh, secrets, and he had the secret to building a flying saucer. So he he somehow hooked up with a guy named Norman Evans Colton, and Colton was a genius at marketing. So Colton began making these really for the time, especially these very elaborate and and um, and beautiful brochures and, and other materials about Otis's idea. OTC Enterprises was going to be the name of his company. They were going to be, be headquartered in Baltimore, and they were going to build flying saucers. Now, uh, it all culminated in April of 1959, April 19th, when Carr and his entourage were all out in, in uh, Frontier City, Oklahoma, in Oklahoma City, that's an amusement park there. I've and, driven by it many times. Yes, and and uh, so Carr, with, they were going to have the big launch of the OTC X1, which was a smaller version of his saucer. Uh, it was about six foot across, and uh, uh, of course, it, it's not going to surprise you that there was no actual launch. But uh, the uh, a lot of people came to see it, and Carr began to collect money from people all all during this time from fifty from the late fifties all the way to fifty nine. He would take he would take checks from people who wanted to contribute, or, or excuse me, to invest in his company, and he would just pocket them. And this got him into trouble with the Securities Commission. And Carr went to jail for a little while for that. There never was really a launch, but Carr persisted up until he, I think he died in '82, and he still claimed he had these secrets, but no one ever, he's the only one who ever saw any of his craft go into the sky, but he claimed that one of his, one of his saucers did. He, the last time he saw it, it was heading up through the clouds. So I always thought that was a great story, an interesting story. And during the nineties, while I was, uh, I was traveling a lot and I had a lot of free time. Editors have free time because you're, you're working for real intensely, and then you got to wait for the machine to render or do something. So I've got a lot of – that's how I comment so vociferously on your uh, board because I, I have time to read something and make a quick comment. Um, but uh, so, so uh, I got interested in that, and I began interviewing various people involved in that, that early movement, the history of UFOs. And I got to be friends with Jim Mosley, for instance – I think I talked to all of the living um, contactees like uh, Minger and uh, I spoke with Gabriel Green, uh, Wayne Aho, Aho. Um, and, <laughs> Aho, and, Aho is correct. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so uh, I picked up a knowledge of, of that. And I also kind of got an appreciation for what, what you did, did a lot of, which was interview people about things that happened, you know, a long time before. And I began to understand because uh, I had some good information, some good documentary evidence, films and newspaper accounts and so forth, so that I could see that when people were telling me their story of what happened in 1959, that they, they would often get things wrong. And sometimes I would find – I would talk to two different people who had – diametrically opposed accounts of what happened. And I knew what actually had happened, or I, 
as close to where we can, we can ever come in knowing how, what, what happened historically. And I began to see that people, you know, do get things wrong when they're recounting events, particularly when they're recounting uh, events that happened decades before. So, and that, and that slowly got me more and more uh, interested in the sort of subculture. You know, Jim Mosley sort of covered that in his, in his newsletter, Saucer Smear. He was, you know, he, he covered the people and the personalities that were involved. I got interested in that and had fun with that. Uh, I remember during this time period, uh, you remember that fellow named Pat Packard who lived here in the Cincinnati yes. area? Yes. So, there, there was, and, and here's here's a bit story of Pat Packard because it is my show and I get to inject stuff when I want to. I was heading out the door one day and Pat Packard called, and I I told him while I'm heading out the door and he says, well I'll let you go I'll talk to you later and I said no no let's let's chat now we're you know we've, we've made connection. Uh, I think he died like three weeks later. Yeah yeah he, he, died, he died really young, he died really young and I I was always very glad that I took the time to talk to him because I mean that was the last time I had a chance to chat with him. That was my Pat Packard story. So yes, I know Pat. I knew Pat Packard. Yeah, he was he was a very nice guy. He he yes. was he was very invested in Roswell, very interested in Roswell, and he got me interested in it. And uh, we would argue on the phone a lot, good naturedly, just like you and I do sometimes. And uh, it, and so that that's uh, that became part of you know my interest in 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 being a skeptic and so forth. And then I think a lot of uh, a lot of the stuff that I write online or whatever is just due to a just an undeniable mean streak that i have where, where i can't I'm, i was going to point that out that <laughs> oftentimes on the blog you get really snarky and and i could never understand it because when you and i would chat on the phone i mean you always came off as a nice guy and i've talked to other people you've talked to on the phone right. and they said they said well you know he's really kind of a nice guy and we could not understand why you would be so mean-spirited on the yeah. blog. I mean, I I refused to post some of the things because I thought they were extraordinarily mean and unnecessarily mean. Take a few words out, change a word around here or not, it was fine, but it just was unnecessarily mean. Oh well, sometimes I sometimes I make them extra mean, and because it's just <laughs> you, <laughs> I don't ever even, I don't intend that it actually gets posted, but I wanted you to see just how mad I am. I guess I guess the thing that makes me mad is that particularly now that I, that I do feel like the kind of lack of critical thinking that some people that we, that you and I talk to regularly, uh, that that lack of critical thinking has, I used to think UFOs were just a completely harmless topic. They're, they're a subculture and it's just a, it's a harmless talk topic. But lately, particularly very lately, um, I've begun to, to think that um, that a lack of critical thinking really has it makes the world a worse place. You know, it leads to the things that we see, like the conspiracy theories, like PizzaGate, the thing that cropped up recently in the in the presidential campaign. That and, was, that, and just to explain, in case people don't know, is that, uh, uh, fake news site said that the I guess Clintons were involved in some kind of child pornography ring run out of a pizza place in Washington D.C. and some guy traveled from North Carolina to confront him about it and it was a wholly untrue story. Right, and he traveled there with guns too. Yes, yes, and, in and violation you know, of federal I, law. And and I so I begin I've begun to think and I and uh, I don't know if this explains uh, everything about how I feel about. Um, 
about the topic because I, you know, most of the time it's just a fun little hobby for me. But, but uh, I do feel like some of that kind of thinking is harmful to everybody. You know that it hurts. It hurts. Every person is hurt when people stop thinking critically. And so, uh, and you know, you're not. I'm not going to be able to change that, right? There's no. There's no changing it. But to complain about it bitterly is something that I'm more than adequately suited to do. <laughs> but, but part of the problem, part of the problem isn't necessarily the, the lack of critical thinking, but you're impinging upon their belief structures. Right. Some people are so heavily invested in this. And the best example is a woman in Utah who said that she'd seen a craft and the window in it and the alien creatures behind it. The next day she was out there with Frank Salisbury and they saw the same thing. And he said, is that, is that what you saw? And she said, yes, yes, that's exactly what I saw the night before. And he walked over to a copse of uh, trees or something and found group. Uh, this is what sparked a memory, uh, launching those hot air balloons, the, the oh, yeah. bags with, uh, with the candle on it. And um, he said, were you guys here last night doing it? And she said, oh, yeah, we were here doing it last night. And she so went back and he told her what it was. She said, no, that's not what I saw. She had just told him that's exactly what I'd seen. And now she's saying, no, no, that's not what I saw. It was her belief structure that was so firmly embedded in her mind that uh, there was no convincing her that she had seen the hot air balloon. She wanted, I guess, wanted to see a flying saucer so badly. So I, that may be part of the problem. It's not necessarily a lack of critical thinking, but being so invested in the belief structure right. that you get caught up in this. Have you ever seen one of those things, one of those uh, bags with the candle? I confess that when I was living in Denver, Colorado, Aurora, Colorado, I should say, Denver, <laughs> we, I always say Denver because people don't know where Aurora is. The we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter pounds. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. Thank you. You're welcome, sweetie. Have a good day. The demand for healthcare professionals who deliver both comfort and critical care is growing. FindNursingSchools.com connected me with an accelerated Bachelor's of Nursing degree program in my area with expanded capacity so I could complete the program in 16 months. Now I'm on the path to an in-demand career that offers job stability, flexible schedules, competitive pay, and the choice of where to work. Visit FindNursingSchools.com to begin your journey today. Um, friends, of my, friends of mine and I did launch uh -huh. some of those things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know what the difference is, you know, because you saw it, you knew it, you got to see it from launch, right? I just don't know. They're, 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 I think personally that there is some kind of uh, there's some kind of trigger in your mind when you see something in the sky as to how you respond to it. So if you see something unexpectedly in the sky, it can be, uh, you, you know, it, it can be an event that you can't necessarily explain rationally later. Well, I, I did. I did my belief structure. Or my belief structure. I did my uh, PhD presentation, uh, dissertation on uh, belief structure, uh, and the identification of ambiguous stimuli, which would be just exactly what we're talking about. The, the laundry bag being a ambiguous stimuli, and discovered that if you believed that there was alien visitation, you would interpret it that way. If you believed in ghosts, you might interpret it that way. If you had other belief structures, you would interpret it in those fashions. We're going to have to take our another break here real quick. Uh, when we come back, I want to talk to you a little bit about Roswell and some of the things going on there, and we can maybe delve into belief structure a little bit more if you're so in, so desire. Sure. Sure. Um, and as I say, we'll be uh, there'll be more information at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. So we will be back right after this. 
Dreams are our personal gateways into infinite wisdom. Don't miss Shamanic Counselor and Indigenously Trained Dream Decoder, Sandra Corcoran's inspiring book, Shamanic Awakening Between the Dark and the Daylight. This remarkable work chronicles Sandra's 35 years of experience with diverse wisdom keepers and her initiations throughout the Americas and across the British Isles, Turkey, Greece, and Egypt. Sandy's knowledge of symbology, psychology, and myth influence her dream blog and workshops. Sandy offers private tarot readings, international journeys, a meditative CD, as well as her book, Shamanic Awakening, to encourage you as you navigate this earthwalk, creating a deeper connection to yourself and all that is. Find this and more at Sandy's website, starwalkervisions.com. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. How would you like to be able to read other people's minds? Well, the next best thing is here. When you know how to read a person's name, you know how the person thinks, feels, and behaves. Each letter in our name holds a key to unlock our true essence. Our name contains both our gifts and challenges in this lifetime. Mnemology science discovers personality secrets hidden in the placement of the letters of our names, including the first and last impression people remember about us. Sharon shows us how to interpret the arrangement of letters as outlined in her book, Know the Name, Know the Person. Sharon Lynn Wyeth created Mnemology Science after 18 years of research and testing her theories and has supported thousands of people around the world in understanding themselves and others better. You'll enjoy Sharon's unique teachings as she shares her system to learn the gifts behind your given birth name. Even if you don't like your birth name, there are jewels in this book. If you're thinking of changing your name, ready to name your child, or wanting to get along better with others, this is the book for you. If you'd like to improve your relationships and change your life for the better, get the book today. Know the name, know the person. Or visit www.knowthename.com. That's www.knowthename.com. Hello, I'm Justina Marsh, and with my dad, Pete, we are going to present a new show called Too Good to Be True. Together, we are aiming to discover more truths about this world and beyond. Do you have unanswered questions about the world? Do you ever wonder about aliens, conspiracy theories, or the universe? There are many shows discussing subjects such as pyramids or UFOs, but we want to relay this information based on our own research, including from spiritual means. Hopefully, listeners will be helped with their own beliefs and will appreciate the psychic insights that add to the previous research and information. We both look forward to sharing this insight and beginning this journey with our listeners. Visit xzbn.net for more information about when to listen.
I'm never really sure why it's necessary to say we're back because we are, in fact, back. But I've noticed everybody does it. So we're back. I'm joined with uh, joined with joined by Lance Moody, who's. Uh, blog or website is called notaghost.com, which he updates periodically. Maybe we can inspire him to put something on the blog now uh, to update it a little bit. <laughs> and we were talking about skepticism and how he became a skeptic and how belief structure sometimes affects our identification of ambiguous stimuli. So did you want to run some more with that? Well, uh, the only thing I, one thing that came to mind is that there's, in the history of you know cases, uh, particularly sort of famous cases that we've discussed, there's often this idea that a person sees something and they they claim that it could not be the prosaic explanation that's offered. Like for instance, a meteor or Venus or the Moon. But then you also notice that in their report, and this is off. This is not in every case, right? But this this is in some cases, is that they never also see the the prosaic thing for in other words they see the they see the flying saucer go by but they never notice the media or they see the flying saucer hanging over their house but they didn't notice the moon there so it, it the or, or or venus or whatever you know it, it that's that to me is an is indicatory of uh, of you know what what's really going on is that which is that like you said people come to the table with some preconceived ideas. And I think sometimes when you get this sort of sudden look in the sky and you see something, you're not quite sure what it is immediately that you, um, that you, you those biases kick in and that sort of creates what the event becomes for you. I think one of the things you need to look at in the UFO reports is the length of the sighting. And you see some of the sightings, uh, and if you go through the Project Blue Book files, which we all know is online under Fold 3, and look at the project card, and it gives you the duration of the sighting, I'll say one to two seconds. And I'm thinking, eh, if you've seen it on that short of a period of time, you really haven't gotten a good look at it. And I think this comes down to the child's witted sighting, which they clearly saw was, I, I believe, a meteor, um, right. and that sort of thing. But they got a quick look at it, and their mind, it, it's, a, I guess, a form of gestalt psychology uh, put in the windows, made them, made them think that there was a cigar-shaped craft with windows on it. But one of the things that, that kind of triggered me wanting to get to Charles Witted was something that you'd said about how the uh, stories seem to evolve as time passes. And I was looking at the Charles Witted sighting because I remembered from the Project Blue Book files saying that there was no turbulence involved when this thing flashed by, which I thought was a real clue for what, what they had seen. And I went back and I looked at the newspaper articles and things like that, and they were saying at the same time that there was turbulence involved. And I've never understood this dichotomy there. Right. Within hours of it, they're talking about, well, there was no turbulence, and they tell the Air Force investigators there was no turbulence involved, and yet they're telling the newspaper reporters, yeah, we felt it buffet the, buffeting the aircraft as it went by. And I know you challenged me on the newspaper article because uh, I didn't give the date of it. I hadn't seen that one, but I had seen another one which was dated the next day after the sighting in 1948 that talked about the turbulence. And it was clear that the first article I'd mentioned um, had used the same information. But it, it, it kind of shows that, uh, that the, 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 the witnesses sometimes are just kind of flabbergasted by what they saw and don't give a good account. There's also something called flashbulb memory, which we supposedly was this – uh, idea that the real traumatic events, the real important events are, are, are stuck in our brain and they're almost immutable. And we learn by studying 
this flashbulb memory that that's not true. And right. the best example is a guy, a psychiatrist or psychologist teaching in the university. When the Challenger blew up, he gave his uh, freshman class a, like six questions on where were you when it blew up? How did you hear about it? This sort of thing. And then as they became seniors, he gave them the same questionnaire and their responses changed. And 25% of them were completely wrong. Their memories were completely wrong about what they had seen and how they'd gotten involved in it. Some of them were completely right, by the way, and and some of them were a mixture of that. The one that really kind of got me was that he showed this one girl that uh, she said she was home when she'd heard about it and all the thing that went on. She was clearly at college. He was clearly in class. It clearly didn't happen the way she remembered. And her response was, well, that's the way I remember it. So, Right. And, and you know, just to, to, to uh, head back into the UFO realm, you know, there, there was a famous study done in England where these guys, uh, you know, they, they essentially lit up flares and lights uh, on the top of a mountain from a nearby viewing point. And then they recorded what the witnesses on this other uh, uh, from the viewing point said about what they saw and their descriptions of what they saw. Some were right, just like you said, some were on target, but a lot of them were not on target. A lot of them described uh, motion, color, size, virtually anything, anything that you could you could get wrong and that you really needed to get right if you're talking about a UFO. The, the witnesses would get wrong. And that should have been, you know, that kind of thing should act as a sort of warning sign for people who are, uh, you know, who are um, interested in proponents of the idea that UFOs are non-prosaic. Uh, but, it, but it doesn't. It, it never, these kinds of things don't ever seem to make a dent among a certain number of people. You know, UFO believers, as I call them, you know, they, there's a whole spectrum there's people who are pretty skeptical and, and, you know, they just think maybe there's something to it. As a skeptic, I can't say anything wrong with that. that that's, that's, that's a rational and normal way. We know you can't get enough of your favorite flavors. Luckily, Kroger Free Pickup makes it easy to grab what you need without any surprise fees. Whether it's extra buns for the barbecue or those chips you just can't quit, start your cart with the Kroger app. Kroger, fresh for everyone. $35 order minimum. Restrictions may apply. Subject to availability. It's the big $10 sale. So mix and match and get two, three, four, five, or even 10 for $10 with your card. So many great deals. Kroger, fresh for everyone. The we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter pound. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. Day of thinking, I think, about UFOs. But then I think a much larger group of people who are interested in UFOs, they've already decided that the evidence is good enough to say that there is something non-prosaic uh, involved. That's already been proven to their satisfaction. And uh, then, of course, the spectrum goes on down to even worse, where people are talking about the various species of aliens that control the planet. So it's it's a uh, well, you know, there there are 57 varieties of species visiting the planet. (laughs) And, And I say that I say that because one of the people, one of the leaders, one of the people who were really promoting that actually said there were 57 varieties of species. Right. And and I hearken back to um, uh, tail gunner Joe McCarthy talking about 57 communists 
<laughs> in the in the State Department. And he got the number off a off a label of Heinz fifty seven oh, sauce or something. Yeah. <laughs> but but you know, I I think that it it also bears not only on belief structure but where you set the bar for evidence. And some people the bar is not as high as it could be, uh, and they're accepting evidence uh, testimony. Testimony is evidence. Right. But but you've got to look at the testimony and determine how accurate that testimony is. And you and I would agree that if you're looking at something in the sky with no reference around it, you really can't tell how big it is. You really can't tell how fast it's going. You can't really tell how far away it is because right. you have no frame of reference. Right, right. And, and that contributes to all of this sort of thing. But I, I, I think that when you look at all of all of this, you know, there are some cases that are very hard to explain. And I, I think of level land specifically, that there's a lot going on there. And the problem isn't, um, I was going to say the investigation, but it really was the investigation. The problem with level land is the Air Force sent an investigator in, the National Investigations Committee on Air Phenomena sent an investigator in, and Don Kehoe, the, the uh, director of NICAP, got into a pissing contest about how many witnesses there were. The Air Force says there's only three witnesses. Kehoe is saying there were nine witnesses. They're calling each other liars and cover-up. Mm -hmm. and, and if you go through the Air Force file and the other documentation, you find out there were witnesses actually at 13 separate locations that witnessed the phenomenon. But everybody was so busy arguing their agenda that the proper investigation never took place. And so we're left with this case that is now more than 50 years old that could have given us some real answers but does not because of, of um, the belief structure of the people involved, the agenda of the people involved, the Air Force attempting to follow their regulations, which said if we can't explain something, we, we, it's classified. And all of that comes together to kind of inhibit rational discourse on some of the UFO phenomenon. Yeah, I, I can definitely, I, I can definitely see that. It, it, it's a, it, I, I'm not as, I'm not super familiar with facts on my fingertips on on that case, but I, I seem to recall there are some some things that are, you know, more on the skeptical side. Is that the one that also may involve or has been proposed involve some, uh, some, uh, what is the stuff uh, this, this jettison from planes to? Um, oh, chaff. Chaff, yeah. No, no, no. no. It's, it's not the same case. No, this took place on November second, nineteen fifty-seven, mm -hmm. and um, the air, the, the the thing was seen close to the ground. The people talked about it, stalling their car engines. Oh yeah, um, yeah. And, and the thing, the thing that I got about that, and, and I realize time is running from us, but the thing I noticed about that. The Condon Committee rejected the idea because some woman had said that had happened to her, and they said, well, we can't fight, figure out any way that that would happen. But I went through the, uh, all the cases that Mark Rodiger listed in his study of the, ninth, of, of, of the electromagnetic effects, you know, stalling of car engines, dimming of lights, and all of that. Right. And the idea was that the UFO suppressed the engine, uh, the electricity the, the going through the engine, keeping it running in some fashion. And then when you remove the uh, electricity, the engine started spontaneously. But what I discovered is that no, you can't really draw that conclusion because if you go back and look at it, they will say, well, the car started normally or, you know, I was able to start the car. So it's clear that in the majority of those cases to get the car engine started again, the driver had to initiate the action. So there's things like that going on that would be wonderful to study. We can't do it now because it's 50 
years old, but they were so busy arguing about it that that sort of study was not done. Um, and and but that's a, a you know the, the case in a nutshell. Well, that's a. I wish I I wish I had that you know more of a knowledge of that. I, I do know a little bit about the uh, Roswell case. Are you familiar with that one at all, or? I, I don't know what you're talking about. Okay. Roswell, well, is that is that uh, is that Georgia? Roswell, Georgia? <laughs> I have a nodding acquaintance with Roswell. What did I you thought wanna, you might. <laughs> what what did you want to mention about Roswell? Well, to me, you know, I I've been I've watched your sort of evolution and your feelings about Roswell over time. Mine have remained rock steady, but <laughs> I think yours have changed over time somewhat. Your opinion is tempered on that case, and, and I applaud that. Eventually, I'll get you to where you'll you'll um, you'll be able to say that there's nothing to Roswell. But uh, the the that case, of course, is is has become a you know it, it's essentially it's modern day mythology, and you had a big role in creating it. You know what I mean? You you and uh, Stan Friedman and a few other people all were part of the creation of what really has become a, a, a legitimate bona fide mythology. And so in other words, it appears in you know, motion pictures and things like that. Things that, that you first wrote about have become, you know, they'll, they'll go on for, for the, for cons, it's conceivable that they'll go on for a very, very long time that people will talk about Roswell. Well, let me, let me break in here because a, I get now to, to promote the book by saying um, the evolution of my thought is laid out extensively in the book Roswell in the 21st Century uh, with some 1,000 footnotes in it on how the information was gathered and where it all came from and how uh, my thinking has evolved over time about this case and why I've gone in the direction I have. But we're also going to have to take our break here, and we're coming back, and we only have 12 minutes, and I'm not sure what we can get done in 12 minutes here talking about this. And we will uh, have more information up there and a, a link to the program if you want to listen to it again at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And Lance and I will talk about, maybe we'll even talk about Project Mogul, although I might be able to divert him from that conversation. But as I say, we will be back right after this with more with Lance Moody and uh, the Roswell UFO crash. Hi everyone, Rob McConnell here, and I wanted to spend a moment on internet streaming. Everybody has heard about internet streaming, but not many know much about it. Did you know the internet streams just about everything? Movies. From new releases to old classics. TV shows. Almost every show, every episode, and much more. But the question has always been, how do you do it? Well now, thanks to the folks at 123 Ready TV, I have the answer for you. They have developed a simple program app, 123 Ready TV, that you install on your Windows PC, Android smartphone, or Android tablet that can have you streaming like a pro in less than five minutes. You truly won't believe how much is available or how easy it is to do until you try. And for a one-time cost of only $19.99, this product is a real winner. To learn more about 123 Ready TV, visit our website at www.xzbn.net. 
This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the X-Zone Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the Exxon Broadcast Network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan, and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember, 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere, 24-7-365. True healing must address four levels, physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual, for us to live joyful and productive lives. We tend to treat three of the four, leaving the spiritual languishing. If you're tired of the same dysfunctional patterns cropping up in your life, Soul Balancing is for you. Trixie Phelps, owner and founder of Soul Balancing, is a naturally gifted energy healer trained in numerous esoteric forms, including shamanism. Trixie has created a powerful modality that safely and effectively clears your energetic field. A Soul Balancing session can remove interference, heal trauma, and restore your hope. Contact Trixie for a life-changing long-distance session today, www.soulbalancing.world. There's a legend shared by many indigenous cultures of a time when the nations were cast to the four corners of the world. Each nation was given a body of sacred knowledge that held a different portion of the truth to preserve. True reality could not be known until all the nations reunited, combining the information. If a single one was missing, the world could not be reborn and darkness would prevail. The Science of Magic Radio is dedicated to reuniting the sacred knowledge. With the understanding, none of us has all the answers, but together we can open new perceptions and possibilities. Through our combined vision, the world can be reborn into a place where darkness no longer prevails. Join me, Gwilda Wiecka, and the Science of Magic daily on the Exxon Broadcast Network, xzbn.net, or visit... Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. 
laser. Sonabello uses a remarkable technique called micro laser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. It's at thescienceofmagic.net. I am joined by Lance Moody here. We've um, sort of hit the spectrum of UFO cases and skepticism. He brought up the topic of Roswell, which I'm somewhat uh, unwilling to do simply because I think it may be permeate the show way too much. But the, the one thing I wanted to say, Lance, is when I began the investigation of Roswell, I was of the opinion that most people you would talk to about these sorts of things would be telling you the truth as best they could remember it. Mm-hmm. I was not prepared for the number of people who would absolutely lie to you about it. Right. And we would meet people like Frank Hoffman. And Frank Hoffman seemed a nice guy. Every time we were in Roswell, we'd go to breakfast with him and that sort of thing. And we'd chat about the case and he'd tell us how he was involved and all of that sort of thing. And he'd produce documentation to show us that he was telling us the truth. I was... I was not prepared for him to turn out to be not telling the truth at all. I mean, he said that he had retired or had left military service as a master sergeant, and he showed us the documentation that that sort of proved that. We didn't bother to go to uh, St. Louis to gather the proper records. I mean, why would a guy forge his military separation paper, for crying out loud? Uh, after we discovered some discrepancies there, we began to look and we got his original discharge paper and found out he'd been a staff sergeant. He hadn't been trained in intelligence. He had been an admin clerk, and that's what he was doing at the base in 1947. We asked Walter Hott, what about Frank Kaufman? And, and Don Schmidt and I were standing there right in front of the what used to be this big bank across from the um, Greyhound Depot in downtown Roswell. And he says, everything Frank Kaufman tells you is golden. Well, that kind of ruins Walter Hott's credibility because if Walter Hott was as deeply involved as he claimed, he would have known that Kaufman wasn't. Right. So we, we began the investigation assuming these people would be telling us the truth and we're looking for corroborative material from, from the various sources linking to one to the other. And it wasn't until later. And I mean, we started in 1989 and I think with the first book was published in 1991. So we had not completed the investigation. We're trying to fund this investigation ourselves. And the, the, the advance from the book helped do that sort of thing. But we were not prepared for the people to be lying to us as much as they have. And I, and I think that on the blog, and, and here I have a chance to promote it again, www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And, and in fact, there is just a new one up about a guy who claimed to have seen the whole thing, and I don't believe him. Right. Uh, and what's really funny about this is he's describing the scene from where he's standing, and I recognize the description. It's a picture from our book, Truth About the UFO Crash at Roswell. I, mean, I, know, mm-hmm. I took the picture, and he's describing the scene from that point of view. So I know the guy's not telling us the truth, and he's... he's kind of glomming on to Kaufman's story. So by looking at that and, and, and discovering that some of these people aren't telling us the truth, some of the people are 
attempting to tell us the truth as best they can remember it, but all the other information that has, that has hit them over the years has kind of um, permeated their stories and they incorporated into what they're telling it. So the story has become skewed that way. There was some sort of an event at Roswell. Um, it may have been extraterrestrial, but it's beginning to look more like there's going to be a, a solid terrestrial explanation for it. There's still some things that I can't quite explain, and that would be the, the stupid press release and uh, some of the things said by some of the officers. And I'm not thinking of Jesse Marcel here, but more like Edwin Easley, who was the provost marshal and told me the, told me the craft was – basically told me it was a, an alien craft, an extraterrestrial craft. So I, you know, I'm kind of still hung up on those sorts of, of things, and he, there, there's really nothing that Easley said that, that is contradicted. Well, you, you you know you ma did manage to find quite a few tailspinners uh, as you as you did your research. But uh, I was going to mention when I you know when I was talking about Carr with various people, I had the benefit of uh, having a, an event that had some documentation behind it. You know, so I could look at the documentation and 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 tell you know times and dates and where people were and have picked have photographs of them and places and that kind of thing. So, like, for instance, when I t spoke with Howard Menger, he began to tell me a story. And by the time he was done, he was in the middle of the Otis Carr thing. And I knew that he had never even been, you know, he was nowhere near. He wasn't in the same city. He wasn't anywhere near the events that he was describing. So there's there's just a whole set of there's I don't know if it just happens when you get older and retired. Perhaps you could tell me. But uh, you oh, start. Thanks a lot. <laughs> but, but you could. You could... And that's all we have from Lance Moody today on the program. <laughs> people, you know, people start, um, you know, people start spinning tales. You found Glenn Dennis, whose whose stories, you know, I didn't believe from the beginning. And really, you know, you got to get down to it that Marcel, you know, he, there's plenty of evidence that Marcel himself was spinning tales. I don't think I don't think in in these cases it's necessarily a factor of old age. Right. I, th right. I, I think I, I think there are other there are other yeah. factors involved in it. But the problem that that um, I see with some of this is, uh, you know, people wanting to be more important than they are, so they've injected themselves into right. this, into this story. Marcel clearly was a, a spinner of tales, and if you read uh, Linda Corley's book about it, you see right. some of those things developing. But there are others. Um, we were trying to cross-check the things. We had a yearbook that was published in November of 1947 that gave us a list of the people who were assigned to the base during the summer of 1947. And so if you come to me and you say, well, I was at Roswell in 1947, I look you up in the yearbook. And if you're not in the yearbook, I'm thinking, well, okay, I've also got a phone book, a base phone book that allows me to check. And there's people who were not in the yearbook that are in the phone book from 1947. And we've got the city directory. So we can look all those things up. So if you pass those tests, you know, you you were in Roswell at least, then there's a possibility you may have seen something at the time or you may have heard something about the time. And well, I know, I know you've lamented the fact that it's, it's hard to, in, in fact, impossible to find anything documentary-wise that, uh, you know, that, that underlines or supports the story for you. I, I remember when I got your book, I got it from, from you uh, directly, uh, your uh, second book with um, with Don Schmidt. When you were here in town for P Pat Packard, I, I bought the yes. book. And it's like the third page, you start talking about the non-diaries. And to me, immediately, see, I, I, I look for things that are like binary. They're like 
this could be real or not real. This this could be settled or not settled. You know, there's a, the same thing with like the Roswell slides, which we're not going to talk about, but it's the same thing. You could you could find out about that. You could get an answer for that. And so when I saw you talk about the nuns' diaries, I thought immediately, well, there there's something that's that that's from 1947 and supports the story. Yes, that makes it that makes it super interesting, and that's why I dogged you for all those years about the nuns' diaries because it is an actual piece of documentary evidence as opposed and, to people's memories. And, the and I know you've, I know you've looked all over for things like that, a diary that talks about the roads all being closed down or, you know, anything that would, yes. that would support the story. But, uh, and I've heard you lament there, there just isn't anything like that. With the nun's diary, with the nun's diary, we had a special forces officer who introduced us to a nun who told us about the diaries. Right. And then, um, my impression was that Don Schmidt had gone to Oklahoma City and seen the diaries. Right. And I talked to him about that. He said, yeah, he'd seen the diaries. Uh, he now says, no, I didn't see the diaries. He just traced them to. And when we began the uh, latest investigation, I said, one of the things we've got to do is find the diaries. And I was I was practicing with my iPad, taking pictures of, of books and things like that so that we could we could photograph that because I I thought there were there were the, the diaries were there. I've come to the conclusion we've chased um, the di- diaries to. Uh, someplace in Wisconsin, and right. they go back. They go back to 1960. The only conclusion I can draw from this is that a) the diaries don't exist. B) the special forces forces officer we talked to, he turned out not to be a special forces officer and had been a PFC in the military. And I'm not sure where the woman was really a nun, had huh. been a nun or anything about it. But we had different people telling us about this, and I was under the impression the diaries had been been seen by Don. So. Um, you know, that's why the the thing blow, blew up. We I have fully expected us to find the diaries in, in, in the, the ultimate Roswell book, which I now think of as Roswell in the 21st century. There would be a picture of the damn diary there. Right. And, uh, there, I, th- I think in the book, we, yeah, I don't I don't believe the diaries exist anymore. So but but the, and then and that's the problem. We cannot get that sort of thing. We can prove people were in Roswell. We can prove that they would have been in a position to see these things had they happened, but we right. can't find the documentation. And as you pointed out, we can't find any letters. We can't find any diaries. We can't find anything to put it out. We got the newspaper articles that suggest something unusual happened, uh, regardless of what the the excuse was. There was one guy, and I've got to hurry here. One guy yeah. who claimed to have seen the the escape pod in the belly of a, a B twenty nine at uh, Roswell. And uh, it, his description is of an MK3 atomic bomb. In 1947, the atomic bomb shaped size and everything was classified. And the real clue is it was a silver plate B-29, which were modified to carry the atomic bombs. And so he's describing this, but he hasn't seen the atomic bomb. And the assumption becomes he has seen the escape pod. And what he really saw was the MK3 atomic bomb. Well, but I know we you're have a, planning we to have close a minute up. And a half. Right? We have a minute and a half. Well, I just wanted to say, I just hope people will realize that uh, that skepticism really should be the default position, that you ought to, you ought to ask for more evidence. I'm speaking to just the listener. I'm not saying that you don't already do this, Kevin. Uh, you, ought to, you ought to expect more evidence, and you ought to be, you ought, your default position should be not to accept something that is extraordinary until you have enough evidence for it. And unfortunately, I think too often and, and, and far too often lately, uh, 
people are willing to accept things merely because they were posted on Facebook or a friend told you or something like that. Extraordinary things. And, and, and that hurts everybody. That makes the world a worse place to live. Well, Lance, we've run out of time, and I'm sorry. We're going to have to do this again because I think this has been fascinating. We learn a lot about skepticism and where the skeptics come from, and you're absolutely right. We need to incorporate skepticism into our um, our uh, journals or whatever when we we're going on. I will have more about this at www.kevinrandall.bogspot.com, and you can take a look at the article about the guy from the latest guy from Roswell, which follows uh, a couple of other postings there. We will be back in 167 hours with more in a different perspective. <laughs>